I'm just going to pray. And I'm going to um, pray from the Valley of Vision. I'm sure a lot of you uh, love this book and know it, but let's go before the Lord. Oh Lord, the world is artful to entrap, approaches and fascinating guys, extends many a gilded bait, presents many a charming face. Let our faith scan every painted bauble and escape every bewitching snare in a victory that overcomes all things. Father, in our duties, give us firmness, energy, zeal, devotion to thy cause, courage in thy name, love as a working grace, and all commensurate with my trust, our trust. Your word is full of promises, flowers of sweet fragrance, fruit of refreshing flavor when culled by faith. May we be made rich in its riches. May we be strong in its power, happy in its joys, abide in its sweetness, feast on its preciousness, draw vigor from its manna. Lord, will you increase our faith? Thank you so much that we have the power to obey and um, even the desire to obey because of what you accomplished on the cross on our behalf. Thank you for these women. Thank you that they're here early in the morning and eager to grow, eager for their faith to be increased. Father, I pray for Sarah. She comes and teaches. Um, Lord, that you would guide her words. Father, I pray that we would have teachable, soft hearts. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust your word. May we leave here more in love with you because of what your word um, reveals about yourself and about us. Um, Father, we commit the morning to you and ask that uh, you would see it as an acceptable act of worship. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, I did said this on Thursday as well, just so you guys all know. Just get it out there. My girls moved out of our house this week. We still have Mark, thankfully, but man. Many of you have gone through that. Many of you are going to put your kids through that, or put your parents through that. <laughs> Man, I'll tell you what, God is good, and uh, it's hard. <laughs> but, um, but it certainly brings a lot of thankfulness, a lot of thankfulness. So thank you for praying. Um, I'm going to pray again because my heart just needs to go before the Lord one more time before we jump into teaching his word. Um, and if you'd like to follow along, I'm going to uh, use the beginning of Psalm 145 to go before the Lord. I just really love these words of praise to our Lord, because that's what we want all of life to be, an act of worship, including sitting under the teaching of his word. Okay, let's pray. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. 
One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. Oh Lord, thank you that you are such a great God and that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. Lord, as we come and survey your wonderful breathtaking design for us to bear your image today. Lord, I want to thank you that what we're going to see is good. Lord, your design is good because it's your design. Lord, thank you for what you've done to save sinners to yourself through the death of Jesus on the cross. Lord, if there are any here who do not yet know you let today be the day of salvation lord open blind eyes to see the glories of jesus to see our own complete inability to bring anything acceptable before you apart from him lord let today be a day of, of greater surrender to you lord thank you lord for all who are washed in the blood of jesus we are new creations and we are no longer slaves to sin and we're no longer slaves to thinking the way the world thinks thank you for setting us free thank you for the power of your word through the power of your holy spirit in our lives to renew our minds oh lord open our eyes to see the goodness of your ways in jesus name amen okay Thank you so much for being here this morning. It's wonderful to see all of you. <coughs> Jamie, would you give me a cupping of water? I don't have to stick this lid in my face when I tip it. <laughs> I'd be a little awkward. Take a quick sip that way. Okay. I think Jamie just stepped out. Okay. Anyway, thank you. So have you seen photos that... No, climbers, not me, but climbers take from the place, top of places like Mount Everest. Pictures where you see the shadow of the mountain stretch out so far it even reaches into another country sometimes. It's just breathtaking to get a view from the top of the world. And that's what this lesson feels like. This is a really big lesson. But it needs to be because God's design for us to bear his image is breathtaking. It's beautiful. And that's what we're talking about today. We're going to survey scripture from Old Testament to New Testament. Thank you so much. And take in God's awesome design. Perfect. Take in his awesome design for us to bear his image image and in particular for us to bear his image as women we live in a time of a lot of confusion our culture puts forth a dizzying array of contradictory messages regarding who we are and especially of what it means to be women or men for that matter and it's a reality that we now live in a world 
that does not believe that gender or gender roles are God-given or that they should be God-given. So it's all the more essential that we have a clear biblical understanding of God's design for men and women, not only for our own walk with the Lord, but also so that we can be a biblical influence and display the image of God everywhere the Lord places us. Romans 12, 2 calls us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can understand God's will. We want to understand God's design for us as his children, as his daughters, adopted as his through the blood of Christ. So we're going to take a look at what God's word says about his design for us. And we're going to do this by taking three trips from front to back through our Bibles, kind of like you did with that last lesson on pride. (laughs) The first time we're going to do it to understand what the image of God is. What does scripture tell us about that? And the next time we'll do it to understand God's design for mankind in general to bear his image. And then finally, we'll come back and look specifically at what it tells us as women, his design for us to bear his image. So number one on the outline, we'll begin with what is the image of God? Well, theologians agree on one thing, and that is that whatever it is, it must be very important. But after that, they split in every direction. You've probably heard some of these. Some say it's the ability to appreciate beauty or to experience emotion or to communicate or to feel shame, to have a memory, conscience, ability to reason, anything that makes us different from animals. The ideas just go on and on. But we need to look to God's word to tell us, right? God's word is where we're going to find out what God wants us to know about his image. So let's turn to Genesis 1. This is the account of creation, and we're going to start our reading right in the middle of day 6. We're going to read beginning in verse 26. All right. Genesis 1:26, then God said, "Let us make man in our image." according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we can see that the author emphasizes that man is created in the image of God. He uses that phrase three times in those two verses, and he also uses that word likeness. But interestingly, he's not concerned here to tell us in full detail what the image of God is. Genesis 1 only gives us an introduction to the image of God rather than a full description. So how does Genesis 1 introduce the image of God? Well, it connects God's image with four things. First, it connects God's image with dominion over the created order. God wants an image bearer to exercise dominion over other creatures. We saw that in verse 26. Second, we see that the image of God in man is connected to differentiation in both God and in man. There's a plurality. If we look on God's side, we can see in verse 26 that he said, let us make man in our image. He uses the plural pronouns. 
So here the Godhead is introduced, and although the totality of the Trinity is not unfolded in any detail at all, there is a hint here that the Godhead has an image and their diversity as Father, Son, and Spirit is connected to that image. And there's also diversity seen on man's side. God created man, male and female. God intends two genders to be a reflection of the image of God. Then the third thing that we see connected with the image of God in Genesis 1 is unity. And we see that both in God and man as well. There is plurality, but there's also unity. There are three members of the Godhead, but they are one God. Notice in Genesis 1.27, he reverts back to the singular pronoun. God created man in his own image. And there's also unity on man's side. There are two genders, but in Genesis 2.23, when Adam first saw Eve, he said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She was different than the animals. There was a likeness that she uniquely bore to Adam. And we can also see in Genesis 2.24 that the man and the woman became one flesh in marriage. Finally, on page two of our worksheet, we see that God's intent is for his image to be displayed in all the earth as his image bearers fill the earth. In Genesis 1.28, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He wants his image displayed all over the planet. So those are four things that are connected to the image of God in Genesis 1. They're not the whole image of God, but they introduce it. Surprisingly, as we continue through the Old Testament, God reveals very little about his image. In fact, we can summarize it in two points. We see first that God puts a restriction on image destroyers. Now, what do we mean by that? Restriction on image destroyers. We'll turn over to Genesis 3. In order to understand how God's image bearer became an image destroyer, we need to read Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is a key chapter in the Bible, and we're going to be returning to it over and over again today. So let's read most of Genesis 3 and its account of man's fall into sin. It's kind of long, but it's going to make the rest of the lesson much clearer. So go ahead and follow along. We'll begin in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat, from it. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves 
from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Okay, in Genesis 3, Eve was deceived, she ate the fruit, she gave it to Adam, and we find the image of God hiding from God in the garden. And after the fall, we quickly see the image bearer become the image destroyer. In Genesis 4, one of Adam and Eve's sons, Cain, kills his brother Abel. One image bearer killing another image bearer. And God took that personally. One of his masterpieces is dead, destroyed by another image bearer. And after that, sin multiplied on the earth to the point in Genesis 6 that God was sorry that he made man. In Genesis 9, we see that after the flood, God, who is the image maker, makes a restriction on man, the image destroyer, when he implements capital punishment. See, Noah is a fallen image bearer, but God still considers man to be an image bearer. Sin marred God's image in man terribly, but it did not destroy it completely. The image of God is still present in some way, and so destruction of one image bearer by another is punishable by death. So God's original intent was for man to multiply and display God's image all over the earth, but what is man doing? He's not displaying God's image, he's destroying it. Now, the second insight about God's image that we find in the rest of the Old Testament is number two, God's restriction on image makers. So turn over to Exodus 20, verse 3 now. The Old Testament clearly shows man's proneness and desire for idolatry. Now, we already saw that destroying the image of God was a serious, sinful provocation when a man would kill a man. But equally serious is this provocation, that man would take up making counterfeit images and flooding the earth with those. 
God has something very strong to say about this very early on in history. So Exodus 20, this is the Ten Commandments. And in verse 3, he said, You shall have no other gods before me. And then verse 4, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness, any image. Verse 5, You shall not worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The most basic thing we can see here is that when an image or an idol is made, God did not see it as himself. God is not honored by man's attempts to make an image unto God. Rather, God is offended by it. So Yahweh is restricting them from image making. Now, why might that be? Well, it's because there's already an image of God on earth, right? It's man. But again, man is rebelling against God. God already has an image of himself on the planet, but man is discontent with that and wants to make his own images. So who carved the first image of God? God did, right? When he made Adam and Eve. So this restriction in Exodus 20 reveals that God reserves the creating of images for himself. He alone gets to fashion the image. He did that when he created man, and that's the only image he wants. Making images may very well be man's attempt to be God, to dethrone God. But God puts a restriction here to help man be content with being the image bearer and not let him become the image maker. That's reserved for God alone. So the Old Testament does give us some insights into the image of God. But throughout the Old Testament, what also continues about the image of God is the absence of a specific definition of it. <clears throat> Excuse me. So why might that be? Well, the reason that the fullest description of God's image is not in Genesis 1, and it's not anywhere else in the Old Testament, is because God had a plan to reveal his image most clearly through his Son. The image of God in its fullest display is so precious to God that he would not reveal it in its fullness until he could do it in and through his Son, Jesus Christ. So we're at C on the outline, where we see that in the New Testament, God fully displays his image in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the image of God. Now Colossians 1.15 says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And we see the same idea in John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, that's Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Hebrews 1.3 says it this way. He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And then 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, concludes with the phrase, Christ, who is the image of God. And so if we want to know what the image of God is, we look to Jesus. Now the first place we're going to do that is in Philippians chapter 2. So go ahead and turn there with me. We're on page three of your worksheet. And what we're going to find is a rich description of how Jesus displays the self-giving love of God. 
So as we read these verses, look for what you learn about the image of God in Christ. So Philippians 2.6 begins, Although he, speaking of Jesus, existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Jesus existed in the form of God. Form is a similar word to image. And then he didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But verse 7 says he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So being in the form or image of God did not lead Jesus to promote himself, to fight for his rights, but rather he emptied himself. He took the form of a slave. He humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. We see in Jesus that the image of God is that of serving and giving, not grasping for yourself, but of humbly giving yourself away like a slave does. Now, the second key way in which Jesus shows us the image of God in his, is in his unity with his Father. In John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. One. Perfectly united. Eternally joined in seamless unity. It's what we saw introduced in Genesis 1, both the unity and diversity in the Godhead. So we see in Jesus that God's image is self-giving, sacrificial, servant-hearted love, completely in unity and oneness with his Father. Or we can summarize it this way. You have this in your notes. God's image is seamless unity cemented in self-giving love. Unity and love. Each of the three members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, reveals the image of God to be this image of seamless unity cemented in self-giving love. And you have some examples of that there in your notes. But none of their unity is diminished by their diversity within the Godhead, by their different roles. For example, the Father elects, the Son redeems, and the Spirit regenerates. And their differences work in perfect love and unity to save the elect. And because there is this self-giving love that flows between the members of the Godhead, they are so unified that they can be spoken of as one. To diminish any one of their unique roles would cause us to miss something of who God is. And it's that unity and that self-giving love that God created man to reveal about himself. That's the image in which men and women were created to bear this kind of seamless unity cemented in self-giving love. Okay, that brings us to number two on the outline. Mankind as God's image bearer. Now, we, now that we know what the image of God is, we're going to go back to Genesis 1 and focus on God's design for mankind to bear his image. So we're at letter A, created in the image of God. 
Now we've already read Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and we saw that God created man in his own image according to his likeness. And we saw that he created man male and female. That's his design. Male and female were created in the image of God. Neither one has more or less of God's image than the other. And next we see in letter B that God's image in man is corrupted. Even though men and women were both created in the image of God to bear his image of unity and self-giving love, we've also been equally impacted by and corrupted by sin. After man was created in God's image in Genesis 1 and 2, right around the corner as we saw in Genesis 3, sin entered the world. And in Genesis 3, we saw that the serpent came and he slandered God and Eve's heart was enticed away from being self-giving to being self-grasping, tarnishing the image of God in her. That's what we do when we live for ourselves, when we grasp self-rule instead of trusting God's rule. So Eve sinned and then Adam gave in and two self-graspers obscured the image of God in them. And we have all been plagued by that ever since. But thankfully, on page four of your worksheet, you can see that man is restored to bearing God's image in Christ. Go ahead and turn to Romans 8, verse 28 and 29 with me. Now we're going to take a look at some good news. When God saves us through the gospel of his son, he restores in us the ability to bear his image. And Romans 8.28 is very familiar. It is a promise that we cling to and we ought to. And we're going to see that this promise is connected to bearing God's image. So let's read Romans 8 beginning in verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So what is the good that God is accomplishing through all things for those who love God? He's making us like Jesus. We can be confident that he is causing all things to work together to conform us to the image of his son. That is what happens when a sinner is born again, when a rebel comes to repentance and faith in Christ. She is forgiven. She is a new creation. She is reconciled to God, and she is freed from sin's rule and mastery over her life. Her life increasingly displays the image of God, his unity and self-giving love as she now lives for him in obedience and faith. This is so important to understand because this impacts not only how each of us lives individually, but especially how we live with each other in the body of Christ. We can't live out the image of God without each other. How can we show unity and love by ourselves? So go ahead now and turn to John 17. This is one of the places where we see most clearly God's heart for believers to bear this image of unity and love. 
We'll read beginning in verse 20. Okay, listen to Jesus' heart as he prayed on his very last night with his disciples. I, this is verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their words. So he's actually praying for us. Verse 21, that they may all be one. So what kind of oneness does Jesus have in mind? Well, he tells us, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. Now that's a powerful unity. It's just like the unity of the Godhead. And Jesus prays for our unity so that others understand what's true about him. Our unity puts God on display. Verse 22, he prays, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus is praying that the world would know something about God's love through our unity. Jesus is on his way to the cross, pouring out his heart to his Father, asking that we, the body of Christ, every last one of us, would be one. Because that's how the world can know something about him. Our unity, our oneness, reveals him. It puts his image on display. And that unity is impossible without love. Colossians 3.14 says, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That's the image of God, seamless unity cemented in self-giving love. We get to display that in our love and unity with one another in the body of Christ. So, it is, is it even an option to be a lone ranger? To be careless about fellowship with the body of Christ? Did you hear Jesus' prayer? Isolation is not for believers. Believers are saved into the body of Christ. Scott's been saying on Sunday, we have solidarity. We're cemented together. And God makes himself known. He displays his image through our oneness and our unity and our connectedness and our love and care and service and building up of one another. And in that, we get to display God's image of seamless unity and self-giving love to a lost world. It is worth the effort. It's why faithful small group participation, wellspring, serving, other ministries are so important in the body of Christ. We get to live out this image of God with one another. So, a little bit of review. You've got this in your notes. We have seen that Jesus is the image of God and that man was created in the image of God, that sin corrupted the image of God in us, and we've seen that believers are restored to bearing God's image through the gospel. Um, 
we get to bear his image of unity and love in the midst of our diversity in the body of Christ. And by diversity, we mean the different gifts, abilities, seasons of life, different roles that he gives us within the body of Christ. So one more time, we're going to go back to Genesis 1. And this time, we're going to be looking at God's design for us to display his image in our diversity as men and women. So we're at number three on the outline, bearing God's image as biblical women. And we'll start with the complementarian view of biblical manhood and womanhood. Now, we already saw that men and women are both made in the image of God. Both are equally corrupted by sin and that both can be saved through Jesus' death on the cross. Men and women are restored to bearing God's image through the gospel. And these truths are collectively referred to as spiritual equality. And they're affirmed throughout God's word, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Men and women have spiritual equality before God and each other. And maybe that sounds familiar if you've taken the membership class. Biblical conviction number seven, you can also find it on our church website, and it's also printed out in your notes. It explains biblical manhood and womanhood in terms of spiritual equality and role differentiation. So we'll cover most of the material on that in the course of the rest of our lesson, but we wanted you to have it as a resource as well. Okay. So we've seen that God's word affirms the spiritual equality of men and women, but it also clearly teaches that men and women have different roles assigned to us by God. There is role differentiation in our families and in the church. That is part of God's design for us to display his image of unity and love. So one more time, we're going to walk through God's word in order to better understand the different roles God has designed for men and women in which we display his unity and love. So on page five of the worksheet, we're going to jump to number two because we've already covered um, how we see spiritual equality. So go ahead now and turn to Genesis 2.18. This is still before the fall. No sin is in the world at this point. And in Genesis 2.18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib, which he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. So it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. God created man for a particular task, and he needed a helper. Adam was incomplete without someone to complement him. That's why we say complementarian, to complement him in fulfilling the task of displaying God's image and taking dominion over the earth. So God created Eve. Adam didn't need a pet, and he didn't need another Adam. 
He needed someone who was different. He needed Eve. And another way we see different roles is that in Genesis 2.15, God commanded Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before Eve was ever created. And yet, by Genesis 3, we saw that Eve clearly knows the commands as well. Evidently, God had entrusted Eve's instruction to Adam. So right here in Genesis 2, we already see differing roles for men and women before the fall, before sin had ever entered the world. Also notice that God created man first and then the woman. God had an order in mind when he created, and this is an order that Paul appeals to in the New Testament as an explanation for our different roles. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that women were created in God's image and that we were created to be distinct from men. Not identical, but complementary, equally bearing God's image as we fulfill different roles. God established that men would be in leadership roles right from the beginning. He created us in a different order, with different roles, and it was good, and that all happened before the fall. And as we saw in Genesis 3, unfortunately, sin entered the world, and it distorted our God-given differences. Remember, man and woman already had different roles before the fall. Their rules were not introduced as punishment because of the fall. It's really important to understand. Our roles are not punishment for sin at all. And the distortion of our roles didn't start when God pronounced the curse to women in Genesis 3.16. It started in the very beginning of chapter 3. We saw Eve in this conversation with the serpent, the tempter, and he is evil. He's deceptive. In verse 6, we saw that she believed his lie, that if she gave in, she'd become wise, and that God was keeping something from her. And so she disobeyed God and ate. And then she gave to her husband, and he rebelliously ate. And so when Genesis 3 begins, who is Eve listening to? Who is she trusting? She's trusting herself. She's trusting her own understanding. So let's think about Eve. What was her sin? Well, we can see independence, self-grasping, self-reliance. What was she doing listening to the serpent anyway? She was trusting her own judgment. She was getting out from under God's authority, out from, her, out from under her husband's leadership and protection. Eve was seeking to satisfy herself. She was rebelling against God. And at that point then, was Eve bearing God's image of a servant, of self-giving love? of unity with her husband under God's commands? Was she fulfilling her role as a helper to Adam? How does she acknowledge Adam's leadership over her? How does she honor God's right to define her role? Now, Adam certainly had his part. He's fully responsible as well. But in a world previously untouched by sin, Eve believed the lie 
that she should trust something other than God. And as we live in a mixed condition, thankfully on this side of the cross, this is very familiar to us as well. We can see these same tendencies in our own hearts, just like Eve. We may independently step out from the protection and leadership that God has provided through the authorities over us, through our husbands, our parents, church leaders, employers, our government. If we're married, we may independently step out from our husband's protection and leadership and try to grasp his authority. We may try to take charge, seek to control, manipulate, to exert our own will. Stepping out of God's design, falling into the same deception and sin as Eve. Now maybe you're thinking, you know, I'm pretty sure I don't try to control. But it can show up in a lot of ways. You know, for some of us, trying to control may be a quiet, silent treatment. Sometimes there can be a hostility that just takes on an attitude of coldness or indifference. With others, it's a shouting hostility that isn't much of a secret to anybody. For some of us, we have a way of just bulldozing right over others with our words. I can relate to that, sadly. This is what sin does. Sin is what distorts our God-given differentiation of roles. Do you know why God gave us roles? It's because he has something to communicate through them. And sin wants to destroy that image through undoing the roles that God has given us. Sin distorts our God-given role differences. When Adam and Eve sinned, there were consequences. They forfeited life in the goodness of the garden. They lost unhindered fellowship with God. There's pain in childbirth. Work is now full of toil and difficulty. No part of life from birth to the grave has been left untouched by the corruption of sin. And there's also death. And most seriously, there is separation from God. Adam and Eve were the first ones to sin, but we are no different See, equal rights, men, gender, those things are not the problem like the world would have us think. We need to acknowledge and help the world understand that sin is our problem. Sin warps everything. Sin is the reason we need a savior. Now, continuing through the pages of scripture, we see the same pattern of spiritual equality and role differentiation. And remember, when we say spiritual equality, we're not talking about equality as in equal rights or something that we're going to go out and fight for. No, spiritual equality means we're sinners equally in need of salvation and equally sharing in the blood of Christ and equally called to be used in his kingdom in our differing roles. Now, in Old Testament Israel, men were responsible for the national and religious leadership. From the garden to the final prophets, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and all the kings, the priesthood of Israel, the prophets of the nation, and women were also active in the religious life of the nation. Miriam and Huldah were prophetesses, and Deborah was a judge. But what we do not have in the Old Testament is significant. 
There were never any women priests or heads of tribes or kings, and that's significant. So that was the Old Testament. What about in the Gospels and Jesus' ministry? Well, when we look at Jesus' ministry, we find the same thing. There's a consistent pattern. This is God's plan from way back, and it's continuing on. Jesus dramatically emphasized a woman's spiritual equality with men in the midst of a woman-demeaning Greek, Roman, and even Jewish culture. In that culture, women were possessions, not even worthy to be taught God's word. In fact, they believed it was better to burn the Torah, the portion of, God word, of God's word that they had, than teach it to a woman. They claimed that by their very nature, women couldn't understand spiritual or theological truth. Men in Jesus' day normally would not even allow women to count change into their hands for fear of physical contact. But Jesus dramatically countered this godless view of women Jesus uses illustrations and images familiar and useful for women. He revealed himself as Messiah to women. When he visited Mary and Martha, Jesus taught Mary as she sat at his feet, which was very countercultural. Jesus touched women and allowed them to touch him. In John 20, Jesus revealed himself first to Mary Magdalene when he rose from the dead. And he sent her to tell the men, despite Jewish courts not allowing women to witness because they were considered liars. See, in Jesus' treatment of women, he showed them compassion and respect in a way they had never known in their culture. He didn't demean women ever. All of this demonstrated their spiritual equality. But Jesus, at the same time, did nothing to exalt women to a place of leadership over men. And what he also never did, though he clearly could have, is to choose any woman to be among the twelve. Now, that would have been the perfect time to do that. It would have been a prime opportunity to change what God had so far revealed in the Old Testament, a time to establish a change for women's roles. But he didn't change women's roles. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't choose women apostles? It's because Jesus affirms and continues God's view and God's pattern for the role of women established way back at creation. And the New Testament epistles affirm the same thing. You have Galatians 3.28 there in your notes. It says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Redemption involves no distinction between male and female. Salvation comes with no preference given to one gender over another ever. So, for example, on your outline there, you have Acts 18.26, Priscilla and his wife Aquila. They ministered together. They equally served Apollos to build him up with more complete teaching about Christ. In Philippians 4, 2, and 3, we have two women, Euodia and Sintuki, who shared Paul's struggle in the cause of the gospel. And there are many, many other women in the New Testament who are listed as various kinds of gospel service. Both men and women receive spiritual gifts. 1 Peter 3, 7 says that the wife is a fellow heir of the grace of life. However... There are still role distinctions. This is page seven of your worksheet. 
So, you know, it's easy for us to see the gospel when we look at spiritual equality in the New Testament. We love, we love, and we should love that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That men and women have an equal need for Jesus and have, have an equal cleansing in his blood. But the gospel is on display every bit as much in the different roles that God has given for men and women in the New Testament. He's designed different roles specifically for us in order that we may participate together in displaying the image of God. Remember, we saw that starting way back in Genesis 1, both the unity and the diversity in the Godhead as well as in man. So we need to remember that what we see in the word is inspired by God's Holy Spirit. It was not inspired by the culture of the day. We can trust God's design. Now under bearing God's image in the worksheet, God bearing God's image in the church on your worksheet, you see references where the different roles and responsibilities for men and women are described in the New Testament. And we can summarize them like this. For leadership roles in the church, the elders and deacons are offices filled by men. Men are primarily responsible for the teaching and the protection of the body. As our leaders, they keep watch over us. They guard us. They're an example for us. They equip us and build us up and they take care of the church. They serve the church. They labor diligently. Men have this incredible responsibility to display Christ-like shepherding care and his loving servant leadership toward the body. What a responsibility they have. And God's word tells us to appreciate them and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And for women, the roles and privileges that God has given us display our trust in God's leadership for us through our church leaders. So we respond. We follow the lead of our elders and deacons. We learn from them. We imitate their faith. We obey. We submit so that their work will be a joy. And we serve and we help cultivate the unity of the body so that together we more fully display Christ. We use the gifts and abilities and resources God has entrusted to us as we serve under their leadership and in cooperation with their leadership. We display the unity and self-giving love of Christ. We bear his image as we serve under their leadership. So when we serve in our ministries in the church, they're all overseen by elders and deacons. Wellspring is overseen by the elders. And I love that. There's protection. Our elders love the Lord, and they love his church. They love us, and they serve us through their leadership. We need their shepherding, and it's just so comforting to know that we have that. This is all about how God displays his shepherding care for his people and how we as his people trust and follow him. So that brings us to see bearing God's image in marriage. Now remember, back in Genesis 1, we saw God's desire to have his image displayed in all the earth. So as we move from the church to marriage, let's think about a parallel here. The first Adam was created in God's image, 
and he was given a bride, Eve, to help him display that image. But that all failed miserably in sin. So Jesus, God's son, the second Adam, that's what he's called in 1 Corinthians 15, who is the image of God, came, and God gave him a bride, right? That's what the church is called in Revelation 21.9, the bride of the lamb. And God gave Jesus that bride to help him display his image everywhere to the ends of the earth. Isn't that just so wonderful, so cool? And it's this relationship between Christ and the church that Paul had in mind when he gets to Ephesians 5. So go ahead and turn to Ephesians 5 with me. Paul uses this relationship between Christ and his church to assign a very unique privilege to marriage. Now, not all of us are married. None of us, none of us are in a perfect marriage. But there is a bigger message here that we all need to understand. If you are not married, cultivating biblical heart attitudes about marriage and submission will prepare you to think wisely about who you should date or marry. It will help you see how necessary it is that you only enter into a relationship with a man who loves and follows Jesus and embraces God's design shown here for marriage. It also equips us to encourage others, our children, our grandchildren, our friends, even our parents, to think biblically about marriage. We need to have a high biblical view of God's design to display the church's love for Jesus in marriage, even when we're in a season of displaying his image as a single woman. So read with me and listen to how often Paul refers to the church in the midst of his teaching about marriage. Ephesians 5.22. Okay. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So here Paul's teaching on marriage, and the whole time he's highlighting the church's relationship with Jesus. 
So we need to understand this. Marriage is about displaying the way God relates to his people and the way his people relate to him. That is to be unfolded in our marriages. That's so much bigger than what we tend to think. Marriage has the incredible privilege and responsibility of showcasing Christ's love relationship with his church. So what does that mean for a wife? What role does a wife play in marriage in displaying that? Well, in verse 22, we read, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 24, as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And then in verse 33, the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. The wife displays the image of God in marriage by willingly yielding herself to the authority God has placed over her in her husband. Submission literally means to line yourself up under. This is how a wife is to posture herself under her husband's role. And just think about this for a minute. God saves us out of being self-grasping. So now a believer gets to give herself away to display Jesus. And if we remember that, that we're being renewed in the image of Christ, of unity and self-giving love, then submission is a privilege. It's the perfect way to display the image of God. It doesn't display his image to be self-grasping contentious, complaining, controlling, manipulative, or irritable. Neither does it display Christ to offer some kind of outward compliance without truly desiring and pursuing love and unity from our hearts. It doesn't display Christ to think about marriage as a ball and chain or as that which is supposed to make us supremely happy. Marriage is neither of those things. As believers, our treasure, our joy, our heart's delight is in Jesus. And he frees us from slavery to self to serve him. And if we're married, we do that by submitting to our husband. Marriage is a precious opportunity to display the submission of the church to Jesus. And... We need to recognize that men have a weighty call and a wife helps her husband, not by taking over, not by criticizing, but by following him, respecting him, being supportive and encouraging, praying for him, serving him, being a faithful sister in Christ. Even if a woman's woman's husband is not a believer His wife needs to be understanding of how challenging his role is. And she needs to live with him in such a way that he is encouraged and strengthened to fulfill those responsibilities, to lead and to provide. He needs to be appreciated for what he does and for the role God has given him in her life. Biblical submission is challenging. But God's call on husbands is not easy either. Think about what Ephesians 5 has given a husband to do, to love his wife like Christ loves the church. No days off, job that's never done, a standard that is sky high, to love as Christ loves the church. Let that fuel in us a tenderness, a desire to make his role as easy as we can by submitting to our husband as to the Lord. 
and by encouraging others to do that as well. That's how a wife gets to selflessly portray the submissive church. Selflessly, because that's the image of God in Christ. Remember Mark 10 and 45, Jesus said he, that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life away. That's what service, service is. It's giving ourselves away. Jesus gave himself away, and we selfless, selflessly give away ourselves in submissiveness. We portray the submissive church. Whether we are single or married, we have the privilege of displaying our trusting submission to the Lord by submitting to the authorities God has placed over us. We display God's image, that self-giving love of God, by having a quiet and gentle spirit, which is beautiful in God's sight. See, when we fulfill our God-given roles and live in humble, respectful submission and support under our church leaders, under our husbands, under other authorities, the word of God is honored. The gospel is put on display. We actually demonstrate to one another and to the watching world the relationship we were saved into at the cross. Jesus in relationship with his bride. This is so good. This is why we embrace who God has created us to be because God has something to reveal about himself through not only our spiritual equality, but also through our different roles. We find freedom and joy, not in casting off his design, but in embracing it. Our true joy is found when our whole pursuit is knowing Christ and making him known. We must be women of God who embrace what God gives us to make him more visible. All right, so today we have looked at God's beautiful design for us to bear his image as women. And it's beautiful, isn't it? It's glorious. And yet it is so humbling. For one, it's a very high calling, and we are still in a mixed condition. And this is a lifelong pursuit, a lifelong process of fighting hard for sanctification so that we grow in displaying Christ's image more and more. And it's also humbling because it makes us more aware than ever of our regrets our failures of our own sin, of failing to display the image of Christ, especially in our homes. And as glorious as it is, it can be difficult to hear because it reminds us of our losses, our griefs, our longings, of dreams that have been shattered or never fulfilled. And so what do we do with those realities of living in a fallen world? Where else can we go? We flee to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. 2 Corinthians 1.3 tells us that our God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Jesus is our great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Isaiah 57.15 says that our God is the high and exalted one who lives forever whose name is holy. And this is what he says, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. 
So we draw near to him. And where we have grief, we grieve. Where we have sin, we repent. Where we've been sinned against, we forgive. And we receive his comfort and his forgiveness and his reviving. And we draw near to his throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And we trust that though in our hearts we plan our course, that the Lord has determined our steps and that we are exactly where he wants us to be to display his image of unity and love right now. Let's pray. Lord, how great you are. Lord, how mind-boggling it is that you would decide to display your image through us. And you want to display the aspect of yourself through us, of your self-giving love and your unity. And Lord, that left to ourselves is completely beyond us. Lord, we would only display everything but that. Thank you for what this tells us about the power of the cross and the great and mighty work that you have accomplished in all of those that you've saved to yourself, Lord. Thank you that you've saved us out of darkness, out of our slavery to sin. Thank you for bringing us into your marvelous light, for adopting us as your children, for being far more committed to completing the work that you have begun in us than we could ever be. Oh, Lord God, make us run harder and pursue you by the power of your spirit all the more. Oh, Lord, please bring forth much fruit and display your image more clearly through our church, through us. In Jesus' name, amen. One last comment before you go to your groups. You might have noticed that we didn't talk about the disciplines together, and that's because um, you have a, the last page of your notes there, I believe, is uh, some kind of application points for the disciplines. And what I've asked your discussion leader to do is just begin by uh, reading these together, maybe talking about them, because it'll get the wheels turning for how... Um, this lesson impacts how we each live out the disciplines and that you'll find that question in your homework. So have a great time in discussion. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's good to be here.